you that visiting, I've been doing a series out of the book of James, which is a very practical book. Uh, it's the earliest book written to the New Testament church, and it's written to a discouraged church, it's written to a backslidden church, it's written to a church that is, um, was expecting God to move in a certain way, and they've been scattered all throughout the Roman Empire. And so James writes this um, letter to encourage the church, and he has a whole lot of stuff to say, and we've gone through the whole of chapter 1, and now we're starting chapter 2. And... Um, Last week, I looked at what James said. James said, this is pure spirituality. This is pure religion, he calls it. He says, this is pure spirituality. And he's very practical. He says, this is how it's expressed. It's expressed in three ways. It's expressed in controlling how you speak. It's expressed, secondly, in visiting the needy and the widows and the orphans and reaching out to the poor. And thirdly, it's expressed in keeping yourself separate from the world. And we had a look what those three things mean. And I said it's, the, it's the, 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 the verses that we read last week really are the verses that the whole letter hinges on. It's a, it's a letter that changes everything at that point. And so James now begins to discuss these things in more detail, these three things. And uh, what he drives at in the first five verses of chapter 2, he says, it basically is this, if we are going to be a community, a community of faith that really does reach out to the poor and the needy, we have to become a community that does not have any discrimination in it. That's the heart of what he's saying. And he says this in chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. You can read with me. And again, your translation might be slightly different. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if, you, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man... And shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here, take a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. This is an incredibly challenging portion of Scripture. And uh, I've said to Helen, I found it, found it not difficult, but I found God really, really speaking to me about my own life. And things in my own life that need to change, attitudes that need to change, as I've been preaching to this first chapter. But basically, James is saying a very simple thing. He's saying to all of us, we're not to show favoritism, to anybody, not the rich, not the poor, not the clever, not the good-looking, not the cool ones. You know, some very cool churches these days. You have to wear the right sunglasses. You have to be a member of Starbucks. Like we have these cool, these cool, cool kind of pastor guys, you know, with the Apple, the Apple iPhones and the, I've got an Apple iPhone, but you know what I'm talking about. It's like these cool guys. Yeah, everyone's cool. All the cool guys. We love the cool guys in the church. We're not to be partial in any way. Nationality, race, class. That's what he's driving at. So I want to look at that this morning, and it's a very simple message, but I've got three or four points, and I hope to do it in 45 minutes. So some translations use this phrase, that God is not a respecter of persons. They use that phrase. And that's not really a new thought, because if you look out throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, that thought comes up over and over again. Deuteronomy 10, 17. The Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, 
who is not partial. He doesn't show favoritism to anybody, and he takes no bribes. That's what it says. Or 2 Chronicles 19.7. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord or our God, or partiality, it says again, or taking bribes. God is fair in every way. He's equitable in every way. And even one of Job's friends is trying to get this message across to Job. In Job 34.19, he says, God shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of God's hands. That's the basic teaching of the Bible. The basic teaching of the Scripture that you might have heard many, many times. And I'm going to see that it's a theme that Jesus also is very clear about. My point is this. We might have heard it very, very often. Have we really understood fully what that means? That's my challenge to you and my challenge to myself this morning. And I'd like to use a New Testament example of Peter. Because Peter was a Jew, as you know. He was one of the apostles. He was one of those that was closest to Jesus. And he would have seen uh, Jesus read the scripture. He lived with him for three years. He would have heard Jesus talk. He would have seen Jesus demonstrate this in how he lived. Jesus was not partial to anyone. But he didn't really know it. Why do I say that? Well, if we read the story of Peter going to the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, we see that um, as he's talking to Cornelius and he hears the story of how God has said that Cornelius should send for Peter, he realizes something for the first time. And it's something that he's known, but it's never really gone into the Noah of his heart. And so if you read within Acts chapter 10, verse 25, this is what it says. The penny begins to drop for Peter in a whole new way. Acts 10, 25 says, When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. It's amazing, eh? This guy is so kind of uh, overcome. And he, he thinks there's something of, of Peter that deserves worship. But Peter lifts him up and says, Stand up, I'm only a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. An angel appeared man in bright clothing, and says, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, and your arms have been remembered before God. Incredible thing. Our prayers rise up as incense. As New Testament priests, the word says that our prayers go up to heaven like incense, and our offering, our money that we give for the poor, rises to God in the throne room of God like incense rises from an altar. That's what it says. As New Testament priests. And, and the angel says, Cornelius, Cornelius, it says, he says, God has heard your prayers and he's, the smell of your offering has come up to him. Beautiful, isn't it? And therefore, send to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon at Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that has been commanded by the Lord. They are open. They want to hear what Peter has to say. And uh, Gentiles hear the good news. So Peter opened his mouth and said, and this is where the penny drops for him. He knows it's all in his head. And now suddenly the pen dro- penny drops from his head, his heart, and he says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. He's got it all in his head. And now suddenly, boom, 
revelation comes to his heart and he understands for the first time that God really is a, is, his heart is for all people. Always has been for all people, even in the Old Testament. It's absolutely extraordinary. And isn't it amazing sometimes when we read, we read the Scripture and uh, like breakthrough comes through to us, sometimes there's a sense of awe, sometimes there's a sense of amazement, and sometimes it's like you're kind of not disappointed, but it's like it really means that. It's like the simplicity of it. It actually really means that. You know what I'm saying? And sometimes I think we don't, want to, we don't want to embrace the Word because we believe it's too simple. And we, we kind of catch ourselves saying things like, it can't really mean that. Too simple. I mean, that's too easy. How many times don't you read the scripture and think, well, I can't mean that. That's too simple. It's too obvious. And yet it, it is simple and obvious. God really has a heart for all people. He really does not show any partiality to anyone. And so Peter goes through this extraordinary preparation to get to that point, to go to the house of Cornelius, so that God can bring revelation to him that transforms his life forever. Absolutely forever. And... Um, you know, Paul, I've said this before, but I, I want to say it again. I, I think sometimes, because we read the Scripture so often and we hear it preached so often, unless there's an openness in our, hear, our hearing and in our hearts, we can build up an immunity against the Word and against the Scripture. And Paul has that worry, because he writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 11, 3, and he says, I'm afraid, just as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts are being led astray from a sincere and a pure devotion to Christ. Some, some translations say a simple and pure devotion to Christ. Paul's heart is always, don't get distracted by a whole lot of stuff. All that God wants for you is a simple, pure devotion, your heart connecting to his heart. He wants a relationship with you in a simple and a pure way. I think it's half the problem is that we often project things onto the Scripture and we like to think, we like to say what we think it is saying rather than actually what it is saying. And I believe the Scripture is incredibly simple. Incredibly. There are portions that are difficult to understand, like the book of Romans, but really it was written for simple people. It's not like there's no conspiracy theory in the Bible. You know? I'm always fascinated when you look at the book of Revelation. People have so many conspiracies about what happens in the book of Revelation. The book of Re Revelation, the beast is the Roman Empire. That is it. It is as simple as that. It is about the Roman Empire and the fall of the Roman Empire. And whenever we read scripture, we have to think of why was it written? Who was it written to? What is the context? And there might be prophetic application to it but for modern day. But that's the simplicity of the Scripture. And so people put on this guy I, I mentioned before. This guy disclosed down his radio station. He predicted the end of the world four times. Remember? From the book of Revelation. And it hasn't happened yet, so now he's closed down the radio. Can, we can't get into that weird stuff. It's not, that's not what the Bible's about. Sorry, I'm getting distracted now. Okay. So basically... James uses a very, very simple example, and he says this. He says there's discrimination in the church, in the meetings of the church, there's discrimination. And he's very concerned about it, and he, he refers to the meeting of Jewish Christians. Christian. And he's, 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 the implication is simple. They were preferring wealthy people over poor people. And so how can we learn from this? How can we identify discrimination? Well, James says three things. He says you discriminate when you pay special attention to some. Yeah? You say to the rich man, please, welcome, come sit here. We like you. you you're going to do this church good. You make him feel good. The poor man, you kind of just benignly ignore the poor man. 
You kind of, with a cup of coffee, just walk past and pretend you didn't see him. So you're not being nasty to him, you just ignore him. Put him to one side. Or you say, well, you don't sit down there. We like you, but you know, I want to speak to the rich man. James uses incredibly powerful language. He says, you become judges with evil hearts. That's incredibly strong language. And he says, we make people feel that they're not part of it if we discriminate against one against the other. And the, the, the beautiful thing that James does, he doesn't get legalistic on people. He just simply points people to Jesus. That's what he does. One sentence. He says, he says don't do that. He says, he says, look to your faith in Jesus, the Lord of glory. That's what he says. In other words, Jesus is our example of how we should treat people. That's what he's saying. Brothers, show no partiality as you hold to your faith in Jesus, the Lord of glory. And so what he's saying in one sentence is that Jesus showed no favoritism, no partiality to anyone, and he broadened this thing to every level imaginable. It's got to do, not just to do with race, nationality, or tribe, it's got to do with every conceivable barrier that society puts in place. James says to us, don't be like that. Your example is Jesus, who showed grace to everybody. And so I'd like to look at two things out of that little verse there. The faith of Jesus and the character of Jesus. And uh, some translations use faith in Jesus. Other translations use faith of Jesus. And I think the faith of Jesus is a better translation because the Greek makes it quite clear. And when, when um, Paul uses the phrase, the faith of Jesus, he's talking about our justification. And we spend a lot of time about talking about that, that in Christ we are saved. Not by works, not by anything, any of our merit, but in Christ we are saved. Once saved, always saved. And a lot of time about that. But James, he's using it more in this kind of way. He's talking about faith in this kind of way. There, there, there are a number of, there are two kinds of faith in the Bible. There's saving faith, which we have in Christ. And then there's experiential faith that we need to live our lives. Yeah? We need to apply faith in our lives. It's got nothing to do with our salvation, but it's got to do how, with how we live, how we believe God, how we walk with Him. So when Paul uses that phrase, it's justification. Uh, it, it, it's, um, we are justified. When James is using the phrase, it's more in terms of how we live and the faith that we exercise, our sanctification, to use the theological word. All right? So Jesus obviously didn't need saving faith. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. He didn't need to be saved from sin. He was perfect. But the Bible is quite clear that Jesus exercised faith in how he lived. He had perfect believing faith. Yeah? Hebrews 2 verse 13 says that. And the Bible repeatedly talks about Jesus having perfect faith. It's not saving faith. It's believing faith. It's how his relationship with God, what he trusted God for, and how he activated faith in his life to do incredible things. He was perfect in that way. So we've been given saving faith as a gift. And now, because we've been giving saving faith as a gift from God, His grace has reached into our lives and transformed us, we can start to, to actually be like Jesus because we've been saved. And so we can start to exercise believing faith in a whole new way because we've been saved by Christ. Am I making it clear? All right? And um, I've just been reflecting on two little cameos in the Bible, which I've, I've, I've just really, really, really struck me about how Jesus didn't prefer one person over the other, and that actually offended a lot of people. There's two stories I'd like to share with you. The first is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, you know, is a short little mean tax collector. 
who's ripped people off for years. And the community knows that they've been ripped off by him for years. He's overcharged them with tax. He's stolen from them repeatedly. And uh, you know the story. It says there's a crowd gathered to come and hear Jesus. And Zacchaeus is up a tree because he's so short he can't see. And uh, the scripture's quite clear that that's what happens. And Jesus is walking throughout the crowd, and he starts calling out to Zacchaeus. And I wonder if the crowd didn't think, now Jesus is going to nail him. Now we're going to get retribution. Now Jesus is going to say, see that man? He's ripped you off, and, I, and I'm going to make it plain and obvious to everyone. And what does Jesus do? He does exactly the opposite. He treats everyone with equality. The man who's ripped the people off, he just simply says, Zacchaeus, I'd like to come to your house for dinner tonight. The one who's ripped everyone off. Yes, the one who's ripped everyone off. Who's stolen from people. He treats him, shows no partiality. It's incredible. This is the gospel. This is incredibly powerful. If you think about the implications for you and I. Or what about the, the story, the most famous story in the Bible of worship? Simon in Bethany is a religious man. Simon, that's what the, the tradition says, it was Simon the Pharisee, Sadducee, very wealthy man in Bethany. And so Jesus comes to his house. And normally the host would wash the feet of every guest that comes into his house. But you see, Simon has already betrayed something of his own heart. He hasn't made up his mind about Jesus. He's heard Jesus is this kind of teacher from Galilee somewhere. He's the religious elite. He's like the top of the pile. And so when Jesus comes into his house, he doesn't wash his feet, which he would have done for any one of his other guests. And he just lets Jesus go and sit down at the table with all of his entourage. And then the scripture says this amazing thing. It says a prostitute comes in. Into this religious man's house. And she so weeps that she washes the feet of Christ. You know what Jesus says to her? He says, this thing will be, will be shown. Wherever the gospel is preached, people will see this act of worship. And you know what he says to Simon effectively? He says, Simon, you are not as good a host as this prostitute is. She has washed my feet. You didn't even wash my feet when I came. She's washed my feet. Jesus showed no partiality to anyone. To the prostitute, to the rich man, to the tax collector. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. I want to ask you, I've asked myself this, how many of us are known as a friend of sinners? How many of God's church are known that those people really hang out with sinners? Or are we in our little religious bundles? So, James says to us, if we have the same faith of Jesus, the Lord of glory, then we are to show no partiality, no favoritism, and we are to hold to that kind of faith that shows no partiality, no favoritism. And James is saying this. He's saying it's incredibly wrong, it's incredibly puzzling to try and use our faith that we have in Christ for the, in the wrong way. We are justified in Christ. That's clear. And so then living a life of faith, if we are justified, if we are in Jesus, Living a life of faith means that we, are, we treat every man as Jesus treated every man. And Jesus treated every man and woman with, with equity, without favoritism. So every class, 
I don't care how many classes there are in, in English culture. Some people say three, some people say four. Every class falls at the, the name of Jesus. Every class bows down. Every economic ba- class bows down. Every thing that society puts in place between people has to bow down to the gospel of Jesus. There is now no slave, no free, no man, no woman in Christ. We are all have one Savior, one Lord, one faith, one bar- These barriers are broken down in Jesus. And so we are holy because of Jesus and we are part of living a holy life is that we don't show favoritism. Uh, I want to say if the church starts getting that right, that would be dazzling Christianity. That would dazzle the world in every way. And so then why does um, uh, James, my second point, James, why does he use this little phrase, Lord of glory? Jesus as the Lord of glory. Well, I was thinking about that. You know, Jesus, Jesus was completely satisfied within himself. Jesus didn't need the affirmation of other people. Jesus didn't need people to say, well done, Jesus, you're doing a good job. But he didn't look to, for glory to other people. He was God in himself. He was not impressed with anyone's credentials, anyone's stature in society. And so when he stood before Herod or Pilate or the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees or a wealthy person or a poor person, he treated everyone the same, equitably. And it's incredibly powerful. James is saying, you are in Christ. You show the same kind of faith as you live your life. You treat everyone the same. So if we are in Christ, which we are when we save, if we are in Christ, then that same contentment within ourselves that Christ has, we should exhibit in our lives. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is we shouldn't be looking to others for affirmation. We shouldn't be looking to others for glory, saying, well done, you're doing a good job. No, we look to Jesus and we look to our Father in heaven who affirms us all the time in what we are doing. Amen. Thank you. And that's what um, Jesus found total satisfaction in doing his Father's will. Uh, John 8, 29 says this, And he who sent me is with me, Jesus speaking, and he's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. His main thrust of his life and his ministry, Jesus, was to please his Father. And that's why Jesus says to his disciples in John 5, 44, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? You're always looking to each other to say, well done, you're great, you're doing a good job, fantastic, fantastic, pat on the back. You're always looking to each other for that kind of glory, and so you don't seek the glory that comes from your Father in heaven. He challenges it. The only God. And speaking to the Pharisees, he's blunt. Luke, you know, Jesus was blunt, eh? <laughs> That's why they crucified him. Luke 16, 15 of the Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted amongst men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus is saying, don't try and live for each other, live for me. This is the affirmation that comes from me. So, just saying, if we judge on externals, we become evil thinkers. I mean, that's radical, eh? Evil thinkers. Strong, strong language. And James is saying, the test of your thinking, the test of whether your thinking is good or evil, listen church, is how you treat people that come into your meetings. He's saying how you treat people that come into your meetings shows whether your heart is evil or pure. 
And he says it like this, because he uses the word, and again the Greek makes it clear, he uses the word assembly. He's talking about the Jewish synagogue. And that's why we know this letter is an early letter, because in the first century, eventually the temple was destroyed and the Jews were kicked out of Jerusalem. So we know that from what James is saying here, this letter must be about AD 40, around that time, still early first century. And so he's writing to the Jews who had become Christians who were still gathering in the synagogue. All right? And... Um, they gathered in the synagogues to show continuity with the Old Testament, that they still believed the Bible. They went to evangelize. Paul, wherever we, Paul went, uh, Saturday upon Saturday, he would go first to the synagogue because he knew there were some people there that he could preach to. And then I also, a short while back, uh, I read some things from Suetonius, Pliny, and Tertullian, those early church, Italian, the early church father, and the Roman historians, Suetonius and Pliny, which just talked about how much the church had infiltrated in the first century the whole of society. And so perhaps the Christians have taken over the synagogues by then. I don't know. But he, James is using this illustration to drive home this very simple point. If an obviously wealthy person comes into the church and you in your heart, even if you think it in your heart, you're saying, I'm so glad to see you. You can do this church good. I'm so glad to see you. He has the best cup. Of, let me just get you the best cup of coffee. And then some Joe Soap walks in. Perhaps heavy metal Joe Soap with tattoos and t-shirts that offends people. And you judge say to that guy. No, you, you sit over there. He's saying, James is saying, you're an evil judge. Judging on the outward, you're judging on the external. So even if we offish or slight someone or benignly ignore someone, we're not open to them, we are making distinctions. And that's why um, he says we can become a judge of evil thoughts. Now, R.T. Kendall, I read his um, commentary on this portion. He says um, there are other translations of this phrase. Another translation of this phrase is you are judges who are swayed by evil reasoning. You are swayed by evil reasoning. And the root word for evil reasoning is the same word that we get pornography from. Same word, root word for pornography. What James is saying is that kind of thinking that distinguishes between people on outward appearances and so distorts the grace of God is a kind of lasciviousness. That's what he's saying. So he's saying if we try and turn the grace of God into something that Jesus would never have done. We are per perverting the gospel. And what is worse? Per perverting the gospel, which says you are saved by faith, by grace, without works. And so you can pervert that gospel by saying you have to behave in a certain way to prove that you're saved. What is worse? That or perverting the gospel this way that treats people differently on outward appearances. James is saying both are evil. Don't have that kind of faith. Can I just point this out to you? James doesn't say anything about the type of people that come into the building, does he? He doesn't say they are evil. He says how you respond to them. Unless you respond well, that proves that your heart is evil. So I want to say again, we should expect as God built this church, every kind of person to come through these doors. From every strata of society, with every kind of personality, the loud ones, that you have to kind of help not to be loud. And the soft wallflowers, the ones that sneak in at the back like this. 
and they go stand in the coffee and have coffee in the corner like this with their backs to the wall. Those people are going to come as well. And what is our, what is our job? Our job is to look out for them. To take care, to not just, because they can slip in and slip out. Have our hearts open so we, our radar is saying, mm, ah, there, there's one standing in the corner by themselves. James doesn't condemn the appearance of the lifestyle of the person coming through the doors either, or what they might represent. He doesn't make any judgment on that. He doesn't make any, say, there's no favoritism. Okay. I just want to look, um, I, I do want to say this. The phrase showing favoritism is not evil in itself. It's not wrong in itself, because in other parts of the Bible, God shows favoritism on people. He does. And... Um, for example, as we come to Christmas, Luke 148, talking about Mary, she says, when the Holy Spirit has told her that she's going to bear a son, she's going to be Emmanuel, she says, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on my humble estate. It's the same phrase. He has shown favor upon me, and I'm going to be called, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. God does show favor to some. Uh, Luke 9, 38, when a man, that my, man bringing his uh, son to Jesus, he cries out to Jesus and says, Jesus, I beg you, look at my son with favor. He's my only son. Please heal him. Same phrase. Show partiality to my son. It's a subtle point, but I think it's a point that we really need to understand. Because in these examples I've just given you, and as, as well as in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the phrase is used often of God looking upon people with favor. This is the difference. When God looks upon people with favor, it is never regarding what they represent. It's never regarding their status in society. He is, he's being gracious to them. He's showing mercy upon them. He's extending His grace. That's all it is. He's showing favor on them. And what James is refuting is that the church is not to be a place that shows partiality or treats people differently because of what they represent, the status of society, etc., etc. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I love this portion of Scripture. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of your work, so that no one can boast. You come to Christ, you don't boast in your economic status, you don't boast in your nationality, you don't boast in your achievement. We come to grace we come to the cross equitable. We are all sinners. And grace is extended to us equitably from a Father who loves us. Paul makes it clear, 2 Timothy 1.9, we, we there's nothing of our merit involved. God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ before the ages began. The burden of the gospel, the burden of James, is this unthinkable it is absolutely unthinkable that this grace that we have freely received from God and is lavished upon us, that we should choose how to dispense that same grace and prefer one person over the other. It says it's absolutely unthinkable. It cannot enter your thinking. It's not the gospel. So, I don't know why God chose me. He did. I don't know why. There's nothing good about me. I don't know why God chose you. But He did. Thank you that you chose me. I don't know why, but He did. He chose us. And that's the basis of why we rejoice. There is this amazing 
thing. We don't know why God chose us, but he chose us, and we rejoice in that. And I want to say that should motivate us to preach the good news so that others can be chosen as well. That's how I understand it. That's how I understand predestination. And you and I are saved. You and I are objects of grace because somebody preached. Because somebody reached out indiscriminately to us and said, I want to I want to show you something of the grace of God, whether it's through preaching or someone praying for you or the witness of someone's life. Someone reached out to you in an indiscriminate way, didn't judge you, and preached to you. And now you're saved. And that same grace, he's just saying over and over, James, that same thing, we need to live by that. And so he's saying, there were some special seats in the synagogue and everybody knew it, and that's why he was changing them. And that might be, not be true for us today. We might not have special seats in this church. Well, there's one special seat. Ladies, if you want to fall pregnant, you've got to sit on that seat. <laughs> uh, this is an in-house joke. So then, the last little phrase I want to look at is um, making distinctions amongst yourselves. Um, he raises a question. Okay. He said, we've got to ask ourselves, if we treat people like that, have we not made distinction amongst ourselves? And that, that, that phrase really refers back to the first chapter where, um, remember when, when uh, James says, we looked at this about faith, he says, when you ask God, don't doubt. He's trying to encourage us into undoubting faith. He says, no, when you ask God, don't doubt, because then you're like a double-minded man. You kind of toss this way and that way. Remember that? We had a look at that in chapter 1. Well, actually, it's saying the same thing. This phrase really means to divide your mind. And when your mind is divided, you act in a divided way. That's what James is saying. So he's already encouraged us in the first chapter of James, don't be like that, don't be double-minded, don't be unstable. And he's saying here, if we show favoritism, you have become divided in your mind. And because you become divided in your mind, you're starting to be divided in how you treat people. Don't be like that. James is really building on what Jesus said in Matthew 12, uh, Matthew 21, 21. Jesus answered, said, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but you'll say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown to the sea. Or Paul, Romans 14, 23, he says the same thing. Whoever has doubt, even if it's with regard to eating, because he's eating not from faith, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. There's this thing of, of executing faith and how we live. So James is saying there must be a singularity. There must be a singleness in our minds. There must be a singleness in how we live. We can't break ourselves up into little pieces. You're getting what I'm saying? He's saying if you hold to the gospel that Jesus saved you by grace and you've received it, you can't not extend that grace to other people. It's impossible. It's absolutely, you, can't, you can't say, I hold to the gospel on this level. Thank you, God, that I've, you've saved me. And then I choose who to welcome, and I choose not who to welcome, and I choose to slight that one, and I choose to favor that one. That is not the gospel. There's a single, there's a unity of belief. There's a unity of your mind. Don't become a split person, because you can't show devotion to God on one hand and then be petty, believe petty ideas about people on the other. It's not consistent, and that's what James is saying. Be those that are consistent in your thinking and your living. And uh, remember it went on and said in the first chapter, we want wisdom from heaven. How many of you want wisdom from heaven? I do. What James is saying, if you live a divided life, you're never going to understand wisdom from heaven. It's not going to come to you. You show favoritism one over the other. 
You know, if we do show, show favoritism to wealthy people, it might have a short-term benefit in the sense of they might uh, bless you or give you something or give money or whatever. But what James is saying, there's an infinitely worse loss that you, that you receive in your life when you do that. And this is, it is simply this, that you grieve the Holy Spirit. You grieve the Holy Spirit. What is worse? Grieving the Holy Spirit or receiving money? I want to say it's possible to succeed in your life without the Holy Spirit. I believe it's possible to minister in the church without the Holy Spirit. You can just simply rely on your common grace gifts. You can rely on your speaking gifts, great worship, good speaking, and the church can grow. So when a church grows, we think, oh, that must mean that God is with, with, the, with us when the church grows. But I want to encourage us all not to give in to introversion, but to think soberly whether there is this real walk of the Spirit in our lives. Because, you know, Samson, the classic example in the Old Testament, isn't he? He kind of carried on, and there's this terrifying phrase in Judges chapter 16, verse 20. It just simply says this. It says, Samson did not know that the Spirit of God had left him. He just carried on regardless with what he thought were his natural gifts. And so he, he, when Delilah cuts, cuts off his hair, he just simply carries on. Like, oh, it's all fine, God. You're still with me. You're still with me. The supernatural power that God had given him is taken from him. And then that amazing declaration right at the end, he says, God, please forgive me. Give me back just one more time. The strength that you gave me. And he tears the temple down. Let's not just blindly go on thinking that God is with us discriminating with people and saying, oh, well, God, you're still with me. Hey, I don't think he is. So, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, the worst thing that can happen to a man is to succeed before he's ready. One of the tests that you and I need to go through is how we treat people. I've said this over and over and over again. How do we treat people that can do nothing for us? That's a test of character. How, what do we do for people who can give us nothing in return? It's easy to treat someone who can give you something in return to treat them well. How do we treat people who can give us nothing in return? All right? Also, logically follows then that we don't treat the down and outs. We don't treat the poor with favoritism either. We don't prefer greater honor on them over someone who's got economic status. Why do I say that? Because it can't be true either. Because then poor people are coming for what you can give them and not for the gospel. That's not the gospel either. Both and. We, have people, we need to preach the gospel and we need to take care of their physical needs. But it can't be one at the expense of the other. It's both and at the same time. All right? That's James's point. And I am concluding now. Because uh, what I'd like to conclude with, my last point, is discrimination is against God's plan for his people. It's against God's plan for his people. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, he finishes that portion, verse 5, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? What does he mean by that? That's a puzzling phrase to me. Why does he say that he's chosen the poor? He does say that. God, God not chosen the poor. Well, I, have to, I believe that has to do with how, how God chooses and predestines. It seems that God doesn't think of us think like we think. It seems that he chooses mostly the poor and the needy. That's, that's amazing. Paul says that. He says, not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were wealthy. Not many of no, God, God chooses, chooses the poor things, the poor, the poor and the despised of this world to show his glory to the world. 
We like to choose people that other people don't have any time for. But what he does say, James says, is that poor people can be rich in ways that have nothing to do with money. They can be rich in faith. They can be rich in prayer. And can I just say this again? James is not a prosperity teacher. He doesn't preach a prosperity faith, prosperity gospel. He never says he has opportunity here to say that God will turn poor Christians into wealthy Christians. He doesn't say that. He never promises. The gospel never promises that you and I will become wealthy in a worldly way. Never does. I don't care what many other preachers say. <laughs> they are wrong. Maybe I've made some friends in the state. Maybe I've made many more enemies by that state. But he does say that what James does say this. He says that those who don't have much in terms of worldly wealth can be powerful in their knowledge of God, rich in the experience of God, and how God provides for them, how God takes care of their needs. They can be rich in prayerfulness and living with uh, uh, trust in, their, in Jesus as their provider that is hard for rich people to understand because rich people think they have everything. And James uses this, this um, phrase, talk about inheritance. I just want to talk about inheritance and I am concluding. Inheritance is a biblical word for what God wants to give us. God wants to give you an inheritance. He wants to give me an inheritance. He wants to give all of us an inheritance. And through faith and persisting faith, experiential persisting faith in our lives, I'm talking about saving faith, I'm talking about experiential persisting faith, trusting God as we walk our lives, he, he, our inheritance comes to us as we walk with Him by the Spirit. We have to persevere and we have to do a whole lot of stuff but it's not to do with our salvation, it's to do with our inheritance, what God has for us. And God is a God of calling on your life. God is a God of calling on my life. I want to say this, that whatever your calling is, God will provide for you enough that you fulfill your calling. He will. He is faithful. He is good. He is generous. He is kind in every way. That might not mean that every one of you is going to become a millionaire. And some might become millionaires, because that's part of God's plan for you. But not everyone. You hear what I'm saying? He'll always give us enough to fulfill His will for our lives. Whatever His will is for your life, and it can be different for all of us. And I've said this before, God is not schnook. He's not mean. He is good. He is kind. He is generous in every way. What James is saying is that the poor find out those things in a way that the rich don't do if the rich depend on their earthly wealth. They never experience the fullness of those blessings. And that's why I preached a message a while back called The Camel and the Eye of the Needle, quoting Jesus. He says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of, of heaven. Why? Because the rich man by default trusts in his possessions and his wealth and his pension funds. And that's what Jesus said to the rich young man. Again, another classic example of how Jesus was incredibly offensive. <laughs> incredibly offensive. This rich young man comes to him and says, Oh, he lets him know. He says, Jesus, you know, I've done, I've followed the law. I've done all this stuff from when I was a little, little chap. Jesus says, You're right. You've done all that. Now there's one thing required. Sell all you have and follow me. 
You know, Jesus had an opportunity there to have his financial needs met for his ministry for all the rest of his time on earth. He could have just, he could have preferred that rich young man said, mate, you've done well, you've done well. Just come and bless me and follow me and, and I'll, I'll, I've got an inheritance for you. Come, come follow me and we'll, we'll walk this way. He doesn't choose to do that. He says, no, sell what you have. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me. Jesus was incredible. Michael Eaton puts it like this. He says, we are, we are accepted by God without works. We come to salvation by grace, nothing but grace. And he says, faith is no more than a beggar stretching out his hand to receive a gift. Isn't that beautiful? Faith is no more than a beggar stretching out his hand to receive a gift. So my encouragement to you, and I hope you are encouraged this morning, is that you will not look to your wealth. And if you have much, I rejoice with you. I rejoice with you, genuinely. I, I rejoice with you. I'm glad that you are living a life that is full of God's blessing. If you do not have much, I rejoice with you. Because together, we're going to find out how God provides for everyone. And it's a great adventure, and we're going to see God's provision. And we're going to have testimonies of God providing in miraculous ways for everyone in the community of faith that we are part of. All right? So I rejoice, whether you have much or whether you have little. And what does Paul say? He says, I have learned this one thing. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what is the reference in terms of when I have much and when I have little? I've quoted that so many, I've, I've, I've heard people quote that so many times in terms of what they think God wants them to do. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's true. But what Paul is saying is actually, when you have little, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can trust him for provision. I can do all these things through faith in my life. Are you with me? Okay. And I believe part of the journey of us as a community of faith, this church, is uh, finding out what is on God's heart for the poor and the needy, reaching out to the underprivileged in some way, radical way. We, we've been praying as a leadership team for a while. We're trusting God to speak to us clearly. And I believe we're going to step into an inheritance as a church which we have not dreamed of as we start reaching out to other people in a radical way. And going after those that everyone else ignores, we're going to get God's attention. And God is going to do an amazing thing. We're going to have an inheritance that we know, haven't even dreamt of. And my plea to you this morning, and that's why I started off by saying, if you're a visitor, I hope that you will be. Not in a, not in a funny way now, no, in an unauthentic way, be greeted and loved by people in this church, but in an authentic way. Because truly, if we're going to have expressed the same faith of Christ, that accepts us unequivocally while we were dead in our sin, while we were mean and nasty people, he loved us physically. <laughs> we extend that same grace to other people, whether they're the same color, they speak the same language, have the right accent, have the wrong accent. I don't care. It's the grace of God extended to us, and our job as as mediators of God's grace on earth is to extend that grace to everybody else.